Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 256 of the Speaking Club podcast. Today, I'm going to open the show by sharing a quote from Greg Sattel himself. Increasingly, management's role is not to organise work, but to direct passion and purpose. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hey, I hope you're well. What have you been up to? Anything good? Have you had any wins? It's important to keep track of your wins. I'm pretty bad at sort of picking up on the things I haven't done well, which is what I've been focusing on trying to look at my wins and be grateful for the things that have gone well and focus on the positives. You know, we, it's uh, easy to get into that negative spiral. Uh, what have I been up to? Well, um, oh, I've started working with a new business coach and that's really exciting. One of the first things that uh, he's getting us to do is create space to work on the projects that are going to move our business forward. So far, I've looked at reducing the number of emails I get, silencing notifications, having AI organise my inbox. That's been interesting. Deleting a whole load of social media apps and basically unplugging myself from the matrix, as he calls it. And I love this because one of the biggest hurdles to getting people to make a change or learn a new skill is having them having the time to invest in it. And it's not even about money these days. You know, most of us feel time poor and yet we don't realise how much of our day is lost going down these digital rabbit holes. So I'll keep you posted on how things go and maybe share some of the tools that I'm using to take back my time in future episodes. But uh, let's talk about today's show, shall we? Now, a few times... People have singled out one particular interview of mine as a great example of someone using short stories brilliantly. That episode was number 107 and it's with a chap called Greg Sattel. Now, Greg's work has appeared in Harvard Business Review, Barron's Forbes Inc., Fast Company, all sorts of places. And he's considered one of the most foremost experts on innovation today. And he also speaks around the world on these topics and works with leading organisations too. So what I wanted to do in this show was to give you first a practical structure that you can use yourself to share short stories and then to illustrate how short stories have been used by Greg in this interview in multiple ways so you can see how it's done. And you can use these short stories uh, in your speaking and as a writer to engage and inspire your audience. Now, I've put a link to the full interview with Greg in the show notes. And if you haven't yet listened to that one, then I do highly recommend you check it out next. Okay, so first up, I want to share 
this short story structure with you. Now, I'm sure I've mentioned it before, and it's also something that I go deeper on in my free Snackable Story Challenge course, and it's called the PAT structure. The P in PAT stands for problem. It's where you introduce a problem that is affecting your audience, uh, the one you're speaking to, maybe in a keynote or on a podcast if you're talking about the subject or wherever. It's you set out the problem. And then the A stands for anecdote. And that's just another word for story. But you take a story that you have a personal story works really well here, but it could be something you've read in the news or a case study or about a company. And you share the sort of before and middle and after of that story in that A bit of the structure to illustrate the problem and potentially the solution to that problem. And then the T in Pat is for takeaway. So you give your audience the takeaway of that story relating to the problem you set out at the start. So Pat, problem, anecdote, takeaway. Now, what I wanted to do was show through Greg using short stories how this Pat structure comes to life. I don't know if he's he's aware he's using it, but he does it very well. So the first one is a great example of how to use a short story to engage your audience with a complex and abstract concept. And the one that he's talking about here is how ecosystems are more important than inventions. So I'll let Greg take over right now. Thinking back when you were saying how things take time and transformation takes time to people like Clarence Birdseye and the Elon Musk, who actually had to create the infrastructure for their products because it didn't exist. Things take time to get hold, especially if they're brand new things. Well, you know, we tend to think that inventions change the world, but they don't. It's ecosystems that change the world. You know, if you think about something like a car, you need roads, you need gas stations, you need all these types of things. And a lot of the impact of the automobile is in seemingly completely unrelated things. Because once you had adoption of cars, because you have roads and because you have gas stations and because you have not only those physical manifestations of infrastructure, but also skilled mechanics, people who can service cars, then people start changing their behavior. So instead of going to the corner store for groceries every day because they they need to carry it in their arms, they start, you know, making a trip to the supermarket once a week and eventually shopping malls. So the entire retail industry changes. Manufacturers switch factories from being in cities where they're close to customers to out in the country where land and labor are cheaper. So if you think about all the impacts of a car, it's it's all due to this secondary ecosystem that, that builds up around the invention and then secondary inventions beyond that. Same thing with electricity. If you think about computers, you know, you said the PC in 1980, 81, or the Macintosh in 1984, that's when 
the computer industry started. But actually, we can trace the personal computer way back to 1968 in Douglas Engelbart's what's called today the mother of all demos. Um, so it took a long time to really get a, a consumer product. It took more than a decade, 10, 15 years. But the the impact didn't come until the late 90s. We didn't see a measurable impact on productivity from computers to the late 90s. Again, because there was no infrastructure. You, you know, you needed, you know, you not only need computers, you need effective and useful applications. And to make effective and useful applications, you need people who understand the computer technology to learn how to work well with people who understand problems that need to be solved in the real world. That doesn't just happen. That's not a technology problem. That's a human problem. So in that example, Greg started out by dispelling a myth. So we tend to think that it's inventions that change the world, but actually it's ecosystems. And that is still quite an abstract concept. But he then went on to put, to tell sort of miniature stories and anecdotes to illustrate that and make it relatable and concrete for you to understand. I think he did it really well. Okay, let's look at the next one. So in this next example, Greg is talking about something that isn't working and then illustrates why that is through a story and then what people can do instead. So it's all around change management and I'll share that one right now. And I think that's why your books work so well together, because I know this from my days in corporate, you know, I'm a Prince 2 practitioner and, and these project management methodologies always miss out the change piece, the people piece. And, the, you know, your two books work so well together because you've got the innovation piece, but you need that adoption and the change, the transformation piece, they really blend well together, I think. Well, one of the things that we found is that we've had this change management industry around for 40 years. Mm. One of the things that we found is, is that it really doesn't work and nobody <laughs> even thinks that it works. You know, McKinsey has estimated that they've done research that suggests something like three quarters of transformation, of organizational transformations fail. Yeah. That's an enormous amount. Anything else, you know, if three times out of four you fail, I mean, most people would quit, right? And there's companies that do change certification and all this stuff. And I haven't found anybody that thinks it really works. I mean, and a big part of the reason it doesn't work is because if it's a significant change, you know, if it's anything more than an incremental change, there's going to be significant opposition. There's going to be a certain proportion of people who really don't like it. And they're going to do whatever they can to undermine it. I mean, I think all too often we have this implicit assumption that once people understand change, they will embrace it. But that's not true at all. <laughs> Most people hate it, or enough people hate it to derail it. So if you look at, you know, what traditional change management tells you to do, you know, things like create a sense of urgency around change, communicate the change. That's great for rallying some people to the cause, but it also alerts those people who don't want the change to happen that they better start undermining it or it actually might happen. So because the, the Cascades methodology is based not on some corporate idea, <laughs> but on social and, and political movements where the idea of resistance and opposition is right up front, 
it's much more focused on how you overcome that opposition. And another interesting thing as well is we generally find out about transformations in a corporate environment or an organizational environment, usually only when they're successful, first of all. We hardly ever hear about failures. And even with the successes, we we usually only hear about them when business school professor or consultant interviews half a dozen people and writes up a a case study which which can be which can be quite helpful and quite constructive but compare that to a social or political movement where we often have thousands upon thousands of contemporary accounts from every conceivable perspective just the documentation is so much better when I went to people involved with some of these big organizational transformations from, and I, I interviewed everybody from the former CEO of Blockbuster, which was certainly a failed transformation, but also key executives from IBM back in the 90s with the Gerstner revolution to a, a major cloud transformation at Experian, the, the, the big credit bureau. Yeah, yeah. When I went to try and validate the findings and see whether they have any relevance to to what they felt and saw, often that I would ask them, "Well, did this happen?" And they said, "You know what? It did." But is that normal? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I said, "Actually, yes, it is." But it, they just thought it was a funny little thing that happened to them. And funny enough, in in some cases, the the people running these organizational transformations. They seem to be almost finishing the sentences of my friend, Sir Ja, who overthrows countries for a living. Wow. So it was amazing that you saw that kind of, of consistency across very, very different contexts, people with very different personalities. I think all too often we take things like political revolutions, social activism, and organizational transformation. And we put them in, in very different and separate boxes. Okay. Yeah, but they actually, they're very similar and have many things to inform each other. It works the other way as well. In the, the Serbian uh, revolution that overthrew Milosevic, they looked as their role models, not so much Gandhi or Martin Luther King, but Koch, and McDonald's and, you know, how to build a brand, how to, to market yourself. So I thought that was interesting as well. So in that example, Greg set out the problem quite extensively and also highlighted how the problem shows up in different arenas, but then went on to sort of talk about the story and the solution, which is rather than, you know, look at organizational change, which is quite um, disparate and not very little documented a sort of evidence about how to do it, look at uh, social and political change. Um, and then I love the way that that flipped back at the end in terms of Sergeant and how they referenced organisations and marketing and all that good stuff. Okay, so let's look at the next example. Here, there is again another myth and a big shift in perspective that Greg is looking to um, make so to dismantle the myth and, and move people's perspective and there's a brilliant metaphor at the end of this as well which I think you know metaphors are so powerful because you you will remember them so see if you can spot it I will sort of come back to it but see if you can spot it yourself and again look at how he's using this structure and the short story to make you see things in a completely different way 
I've got to ask you, so the mapping innovation talks about a lot about how businesses can stay relevant. And with the lifespans of business becoming shorter and shorter, what tips have you got for businesses? And, and I guess also, because this is relevant for speakers as well, because this show, the, the audience is, is speakers, is how do you avoid becoming obsolete in, in today's world? Well, not to oversimplify it, but I think <laughs> there is a pretty consistent formula that if you don't explore, you won't discover. If you don't discover, you won't invent. If you, won't, if you don't invent, you will be disrupted eventually. It's just a matter of time. If you look at a business like GE, right, yeah. um, which recently, I mean, after decades, you know, after a century of enormous success, nearly went bankrupt. And my particular view of it, I mean, you can lay it at the the proximate cause was that they invested a lot of money into its power business and, and natural gas turbines when people didn't want to buy natural gas turbines. And that business wasn't growing anymore because the, of the shift to, to renewables. But the even bigger problem is, is GE hasn't really invented anything since, you know, CT scanners back in the 1970s. That's a very, very big problem. Mm. Similarly, uh, if you look at a business like Kodak, you know, people say the big myth about Kodak is, well, they invented digital cameras, but, you know, then they never commercialized. It. It's not true at all. They had one of the best-selling lines of digital cameras. They were leaders in the digital camera industry. The problem is that there wasn't that much money in digital cameras. There was, you know, where the developing film was a real cash cow. Uh, so, again, the problem wasn't so much that they didn't make good business decisions. The problem was that they didn't invent any new businesses. If you look at a company like Procter & Gamble, which continues to create new billion-dollar brands, or even like IBM, that seems to get its entire business disrupted, you know, like once every 20 years. I mean, the cloud completely killed their business. Yeah. But they're still, you know, and, and they've taken their lumps for sure. But you're still talking about a very, very profitable business that's on the cutting edge of new technologies, whether it's blockchain or quantum computing or neuromorphic or whatever. And you see the same thing at, at a company like Google, which has this fantastic cash cow, very much like Kodak. But at the same time, you know, they're investing in things like self-driving cars and medical technologies and, and all sorts of, of new things because they understand at some point, you know, search isn't going to be all that profitable. Yeah. You need to build the ark before the store. But so you talked about some of those companies that have had like years and years. Are they innovating or are they acquiring? I don't think it's so much innovating or acquiring because acquisition can be a good innovation strategy if you look at a company like Cisco. Yeah. Um, uh, and all of these companies are certainly acquiring. Again, like Google, they're, they're investing a lot of money into, or a lot of effort and resources into their building a, a competitive quantum computer. But they're also investing in other quantum computing companies that have a very different and actually a competing approach to their own. So I think you have to do both. But I think the the real issue is you can't just 
depend on adapting. Everybody says adapt or die. And obviously you need to adapt to, to the way the world changes. But think about that. When you're adapting, you're already losing. You're reacting, aren't you? Yeah, you're yeah. already behind. Yeah, yeah. Nobody talks about how, how Apple adapted to the smartphone or how Google adapted to the search engine or how Facebook. And in fact, when those companies, when Google tried to adapt to social media, they failed every single time. Apple, whenever they've tried to adapt, generally have not done it very well. So it's much more important to prepare rather than adapt. Did you spot the metaphor? Build the ark before the storm. And I could have stopped that there, but I let it uh, run on because I do think, you know, hitting that point home and showing some more sort of mini story examples around Google and Apple and talking about adapting and how that means you're already on the back foot and foot and how you need to prepare um, is is was a really sort of nice wrap up to that uh, story. Okay, so the next one I want to share with you is showing how you can use a story to inspire action. See what you make of this one. I think there's two competing things. Um, I think first, you know, every great business has to have a vision and a mission. Mm. Yes. And I think if you look at Elon Musk, he certainly has that, right? We, you mentioned SpaceX because he dreams of, of going to Mars and becoming, as he says, an interplanetary species, but also Tesla. Yes. wasn't just to make a car, but to save the planet, to make renewable energy a, a, a reality. But the way he went about it was very, very different. Instead of, because I think we get it in our heads that you always have to go after the largest addressable market that you can find. Where what I found in my research is when you have something very new and different, that's the worst thing you can possibly do because large, large markets tend to be fairly well served. Yeah. So if you look at a business like Tesla, he didn't try and make a car for everybody. He made a very, very specific car. He said electric cars have lots of weaknesses, right? You have range anxiety. You, you don't have an infrastructure around them. It's a new technology. They're not really dependable. People don't know what they work. But they accelerate much faster than gasoline cars. So he made a, a really expensive car. Not for parents to pick up the kids at soccer practice, but for Silicon Valley, you know, millionaires to, you know, impress their friends during, you know, at the weekend. That's how he first got the traction that made Tesla. And he had a, a long blueprint of first we're going to build the sports car, then we're going to, you know, make something a, a little bit more and then eventually get to a, a mass vehicle, which he's, he's pretty much followed. Yeah. So instead of looking for that large addressable market, what you real, really want to look for is what I call a hair on fire use case. So somebody who needs a problem solved so badly that they almost have their hair on fire. So either they've got budget for it that they don't know what to do with, or usually they've scotch, scotch taped together some solution <laughs> that really doesn't work that well. Because those are the people who are going to be willing to work with you and to overcome those inevitable glitches and snafus you have that tend to happen when you're when you're starting a business. I think what that uh, short story sort of section 
did so well is get you to go, oh, yes, I see that. I hadn't thought of it in that way before, because there is this sort of idea that we've got to go out and get as many people to buy our thing as possible. But having that long range plan and really identifying those hair on fire people, as Greg put it in a great great metaphor again there, is a different way of doing things. And I think that is really inspirational, especially if you're a startup listening to that, to get into action and, you know, execute on those long range plans and try a different um, tactic. And aren't you going to go out and buy Greg's book after hearing that? So again, a lovely, really impressive, different angle on it and a great use of story to illustrate that point that he's making. Okay, let's talk about the next one. Um, This is just Greg talking about why you should show rather than tell. And as you know, I'm a massive advocate of that. Um, But it's nice to hear him talk about it as well. Over to Greg. Which is a brilliant segue into uh, the next thing that I wanted to ask you. So one of the things I loved about what I've seen of you speak and your writing too is your use of stories. Uh, You just referenced a couple there, especially Cascades. The beginning of that was just like one story after another. Have you always used stories to sell your message? I think that it's important to show rather than just tell. Mm. So many speakers... And you see this, I think the biggest thing when you're starting out speaking, because most most speakers have some sort of corporate experience and they say, I know how to present in a boardroom. No, I'm very successful. So I'm going to go and tell people how I've been successful. But it's a very different audience when you're a professional speaker, right? There's not, and even within a boardroom type of environment, it's really important to show rather than just tell And stories are a great way to do that. So the last example I want to share with you from this interview with Greg Sattel is him introducing the concept of tension and gripping the audience out of the gate. Now, it's something that you might have heard me talk about before in the form of something that I call lightning bolts. And I think Greg does an excellent job uh, of illustrating how powerful these uh, lightning bolts and tension grabbers, if you want to call them something else, are for your audience. And that's whether you're doing a talk or whether you are writing a book. And as he says, in his books, he tries to make sure that he gets this at least on the first page. And I'm sure he's actually selling himself short because I'm sure he does it in his talks as well. Another really, really uh, important concept when, when you're speaking is to start with a specific case. A man was walking down the street and he got, you know, hit by a car, whatever. Start with this specific case and then work up to the general principle where our natural inclination is to do the exact opposite, to talk about a general principle and then try and uh, come up with specific cases that that provide the evidence. In speaking, it's much better to, to start with the evidence first and then explain what it means. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, it's absolutely one of the things that I talk with my students about. Is and this is why you know I don't know if you have those in America, but over here when we have like charity telethons, they will focus in in one child or one family, and uh, mm-hmm. because we get emotionally invested, and it's more relatable for us at that level to then you know extrapolate that to the impact on Africa or continent or whatever it is. So you're absolutely right. It's, I also think it's important to create if you look at the basic elements of the story where you have exposition tension and then resolution it's important to pull in that tension as early as you can yes a while back i saw this this one woman speak who was so incredibly compelling she ran an organization who helped women across the world who 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 live in repressive environments and she talked about this one particular woman who's basically kidnapped by her family to be to be married off to you know some one of these horrible situations and got word to her office and that's how she started the talk and throughout the whole talk when she was explaining what she does and how, you're thinking what happened to this woman <laughs> and you you know you're like on the edge of your seat because she had introduced that tension very very early and if you think about great novels you know it was the best of times it was the worst of times mother died today or was it yesterday it's so hard to tell the best novels the best opening lines all happy families are alike all unhappy families are unhappy in their own way those great opening lines they introduce tension in the very first sentence i've never been able to do that but I do make an effort to make sure it's on the first page of my book. Well, there you go. I'm really grateful to the people that pointed uh, this episode out as the great example it is. Now, obviously, I've had some brilliant guests on my show, lots and lots and lots of brilliant guests, and they've all used stories in some form or another. But this was just one that, you know, people mentioned a few times. And so I thought it was worth using to illustrate how powerful these short stories are are and can be used easily in different platforms and podcast interviews are one of them for illustrating key points, uh, overcoming objections, dismantling myths and all that good stuff. So you can use them in this format and obviously you can use them in your talk as well. And I would really recommend going to listen to the original episode in full because Greg has lots more value to give to you. Uh, That is episode 107. And as I said, the link is in the show notes. Do also go and check out Greg. Uh, His website is gregsatel.com. He is on all social media as at digital tonto so that should be quite easy to find and of course go and check out his books as well and links are also in the show notes to those right well that's it for this week next week we're going to have our first quick tip episode so look out for that and uh yes it's been great for you to Choose the speaking club. As I always say, I'm really grateful. If you did get value out of this episode or other episodes that you've listened to and you haven't yet left a rating or review, I'd really love it if you could take a couple of minutes to do that. You can do it easily over at ratethispodcast.com slash TSC. And do go and check out the Snackable Story 
course that's completely free over at my website. Uh, that's saraharcher.co.uk slash challenge. And that will help you start to find those personal stories and anecdotes and how also to locate them in the media and so on so that you can start using them all over the place to uh, bring people into your world. And yeah, if you aren't subscribed to the podcast yet, then do go ahead and subscribe. As I say, we've got some more episodes coming out, the extra ones starting from next week. So that should be good and some great guests lined up too. Thanks again. You have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week and I will see you next time. In the meantime, you know what you need to do. Go out, grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye-bye. If you want to be more memorable and engaging when you talk, then you need to share more stories. Stories can help you better connect with your audience and their problems and get them leaning in more powerfully than anything else. And short, snackable stories are great to use in pitches, Facebook Lives, podcasts, videos, keynotes, webinars, blogs, in fact, everywhere to share your message and grow your business. The trouble is that finding your snackable stories and confidently sharing them can feel like a struggle. And that struggle can slow you down or stop you in your tracks. But that's where my free snackable story challenge comes in. Over the course of just five days, I'm going to give you resources, training and coaching to help you find your authentic personal stories to share and build your skills and confidence in sharing them. Not only that, but the challenge will guide you towards a tangible result at the end and assets for you to use going forward. The next challenge is starting soon. So to grab your space, go to saraharcher.co.uk slash challenge right now.